Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. The Economist. In London, this is The Economist. You're listening to Babbage, a weekly conversation on science and technology. I'm Kenneth Kukier, the data editor, and I'm talking today with Natasha Loder, our healthcare correspondent, and Jason Palmer, our science correspondent. In this episode, we'll talk about the mother of all flu jabs, and we'll look at bugs, not software bugs, but real ones, the small microbes that live among us. Natasha, let's turn to you first. There are reports that scientists have developed a new kind of vaccine for the flu. Tell us more. So two groups of scientists reported this week that they had developed something called a a universal flu vaccine. And what that means is that it's a kind of vaccine that would work in more than one strain of flu. And as you probably know, Ken, every year we have to roll up our sleeves and get that annual jab, which is uh, inconvenient and painful. And uh, scientists now think that they might be able to develop a vaccine that would protect from year to year. Okay, but if the whole idea of a vaccine is that it looks exactly at what the nature of the disease is, and then, in this case, the strain of the flu, and can attack that, how is it even feasible to have some sort of master algorithm or a universal flu vaccine? What's really interesting about the flu virus is that what mutates from strain to strain is one portion of one molecule that's on the outside of the flu virus. And you can imagine the flu virus as a ping pong ball with protrusions all over its surface. And on the sort of top of uh, these protrusions is a protein called hemagglutin. And what it is, is that uh, these change, these mutate very readily, but they're also uh, the surface of the molecule that's most easy uh, for scientists to use in creating a vaccine. It's easy to access. It's right there. And so what they've been trying to do is target a different portion of that hemagglutin molecule, the stem. And this stem of the hemagglutin molecule doesn't change as readily. So by targeting that stem, by using that to create the vaccine, that particular portion of the molecule, they think that they will be able to create something that year in, year out is going to be able to stimulate immunity in people to different strains of flu virus. Any timescale that you would wager that if things go well, when could I expect to get the jab of all jabs? I mean, I'm not good at predicting these things, but I would think it's at least four, if not more years away. Can I just ask? Yes. Um, this is the, the, the perpetual... Jason, come on in. If I may. This is the, this is the perpetual question around advances in science and so on. But they've identified an area that's easier to work with or a part that's less changing. Mm-hmm. And this notion of uh, getting an, an annual jab and getting the prescription right each year for the one that's going to be most common in that year is all based on, well, we know that's going to change. If there was a part that didn't change much, why have, hasn't all of the effort gone there to start with? Just because it's so difficult, you know, the researchers had to really figure out how to target this stem bit of the molecule because 
when you take off the top of the molecule, the whole thing falls apart. And so what both, I mean, they're independent groups of researchers, but they figured out different ways of holding that molecule, the stem bit of that molecule together, so that it could still be presented and you know used to create a vaccine. I mean, one of them, for example, they attached the stem to sort of nanoparticles, and that kind of held it together. And another one used a sort of mutated version of the stem to sort of hold it together. Because, yeah, once you take the head off, it falls apart. So it's, it's a difficult scientific challenge, and it's just taken a long time. And what's been learned from these studies could be applied to other virology pursuits? Yeah, potentially. Um, there's not that many viruses that I can think of that mutate quite as readily as influenza. Um, there's a cold virus as well. I mean, if you think about it, many of the jabs that we receive they're things we have once or maybe not very often, like tetanus you would have every 10 years, you know, measles you'd have once in a lifetime. So I, I've gotten a bit distracted because I can't remember when I had my last tetanus shot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so <laughs> Don't I mean, cut yourself with a rusty nail. The flu virus presented, as I understand it, quite a tricky technical challenge. Um, so that's why it's taken so long. That's great. Well, it's really interesting. Thank you very much. Jason, let's turn to you and other sorts of small things. In this case, it's bugs, microbes specifically, and they're in our homes. Tell us more about this. Uh, Well, this is the outcome of a citizen science project, or rather the the next outcome of a citizen science project, in which people were asked to gather up some dust from their homes, from a part of their homes where uh, that doesn't get cleaned much and where stuff just kind of collects. That sounds Uh, totally disgusting. It is. You know, often citizen science stuff is not the most edifying stuff. But let me tell you, we are really seeing interesting stuff out of it this time. (laughs) Okay, (laughs) let's hear it. Um, The goal here is to kind of catalog all of the bacteria and and fungi that are in our homes. And this project uh, looked at a little over a thousand homes people sent in both inside and outside swabs. And this week, the the story is about kind of how the, the various communities of bacteria and fungi vary inside and outside and geographically across the U.S. So all of this is going on in the U.S., though, you know, studies like this kind of broadly applicable, I think, globally. The, the idea is here. And how do they catalog the microbes in there? What technologies do they use? Well, it's uh, it's kind of another one of these high-throughput sequencing things. So you don't get out a microscope and try to look down each one, count this one, this number 632 and this one here. Um, it's put them all in a bucket, chop up all of the DNA, um, and get a big statistical analysis to kind of match up. If this mess of stuff is in the bucket, then what stuff must have gone in? Uh, It's genetics and statistics put together. There's a bunch of bugs, right? You're already comfortable with this idea, right? All the ones crawling around on your skin now. Love it. Yeah. Mm, Um, Yummy. Perfectly happy with that. So 2,000 phylotypes, let's call it sort of families of fungi on average, the the numbers vary a lot, and 7,000 phylotypes of bacteria in our homes. All the time. Sounds great. Breath, breathing them in, crawling over your breakfast cereal. Are we still okay with this? Are we sure? Yeah. Okay. Good. Love it. Okay. Um, what's interesting about the, the sort of distribution here is how much things change across geography and how much things change across sort of demography, if you like. So fungally speaking, if I can speak fungally, they, that just kind of varies pretty much entirely with geography, right? If the sort of the species that you find in the Northeast, broadly the same as the ones you find in the Northeast, but different from those you find in the West, let's say. Bacterially, it depends much more on who's in the house. What's in the house? I, I mean, I have an observation, which is that certainly we can think of a lot of more 
symbiotic relationships in bacteria and humans than you can with fungi. You know, we know the lactobacillus bacteria is a good thing to have in your body. And we're guessing now with studies on the microbiome that there's actually a whole bunch of other things that are probably pretty helpful to have as well. I can't think of many fungi that are good to have. So maybe the basic thing is, is that bacteria are being carried around by humans because we kind of need them. And so that's why. Or, it depends. or at least they don't harm us. Right. Or they don't harm us. Whereas fungi, you know, tend to stay from place to place. I mean, the only reason humans would move a fungus around is if you had a fungal infection, which by and large is seen as a bad thing and one gets rid of. Well, you're, you're quite right. I mean, this shows up in the data as well, that in terms of diversity inside versus outside. Fungally speaking, again, if I may, um, <laughs> it's pretty much the same inside as outside. That suggests that people are carrying these things in. You open the door, in comes a fresh breath of fungus right. you know, um, or through ventilation systems and so on. Bacterially speaking, the distribution is very, very different. So uh, the bacteria have an ecological niche inside our homes that is dependent on us. Exactly. Or the dog. So does the data tell us anything yet about sort of whether having pets in the house are kind of good or bad for you, sort of bug wise? I think it's a bit early. Um, I think it's, you know, it's, it's a lot clearer, as you say, with fungi in, in the sense that, you know, there are kind of no good ones. And we know that if a house has had water damage, for instance, you get a different colony of those. And certainly lots of things have been associated with uh, respiratory concerns and certainly a lack of exposure to lots of nasty bugs or helpful bugs or bugs in general has been associated to um, autoimmune disorders and, and allergies and so on. There's a very active debate as to the mere presence of bugs more generally being a good thing and a bad thing and so on. So I wouldn't want to say, for all the cat fans out there, I wouldn't want to say it's bad to have a cat. I think that's very unclear as yet. Well, let me pick up on that and just ask, are there any other practical applications that you could see this research going towards? Or are we just at the stage right now of observation before we find actual uses for this information? Well, one thing that's been mentioned is something in forensic. So you get this grand statistical database and so on, and you turn the question around. Instead of saying, here's a place, what are the bugs that are in it? I say, here are some bugs that we found on a crime scene or whatever it is. Where did it come from? Um, mm. And earlier in the year, there was a study that showed I mean, it's, it's not all that impressive. You wouldn't want to, to be sort of convicted on this, but... CSI London. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But a uh, study in April showed that half of the guesses were within 200 kilometers of, of where it actually came from across the entire U.S. Mm. So you can quickly see, even with a small amount of study, how that gets you to a forensic use. Okay, interesting. And a final question is, this is being done by a, a ragtag group of citizens? Well, I mean, this is just another example of, of what's called citizen science. And these things tend to be very good for ecology, right? There's only so many scientists in the world, sadly. So, you know, we know that there are plenty of questions that could be answered in homes, say, you know, or, or in back gardens. So you'll see these citizen science projects where, you know, tell us if you see a bee, take a picture of the bee, and then you start cataloging bees and so on. You hear about these things a lot, and they sound very, you know, it's a great way to get sort of kids involved and so on, but you don't always hear what the outcomes. And what's interesting about this is this one just keeps paying dividends. We, some people have gone, taken a couple of cotton swabs in, uh, above a door in their house, and still we're learning, you know, what it is that comes out of that. Great. So what you're suggesting is that I should show my children just how appallingly dirty and dusty our home is? Well, you can tell them that everybody else's home is just as dirty. And anyway, it, it shows them the value of some citizen science early on. For that reason alone, Jason, I will support citizen science and show my children just what our dusty floors look like. Jason, thank you for joining us. Natasha, thank you very much as well. Sadly, that's all for this episode. You've been listening to Babbage. For more news on science and technology, go to economist.com. In London, this is The Economist. The Economist.
Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.